Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, March 15th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's top headlines. A U.S. drone crashes after allegedly colliding with a Russian fighter jet. Australia, the U.S. and the U.K. unveil a major nuclear submarine deal. Russia agrees to extend its grain deal with Ukraine by 60 days. A controversial judicial bill passes the first vote in Israel's Knesset. Clashes erupt in Pakistan as police try to arrest ex-Prime Minister Imran Khan. Biden signs a new gun safety executive order. The U.S. approves the Alaskan oil and gas Willow Project. Lahore is found to be the world's most polluted city in a new survey. The FBI says U.S. hate crimes increased by nearly 12 percent in 2021. And a new report says extreme poverty could be eradicated by 2050. In our first story, a U.S. drone crashes after an alleged collision with a Russian fighter jet. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS News, BBC, NBC News, PBS, Reuters, and Vox. U.S. officials claim a Russian Su-27 fighter jet collided with an American military drone over the Black Sea on Tuesday. The U.S. military says it brought down the drone in international waters, and U.S. Air Force Brigadier General Pat Ryder said the MQ-9 U.S. drone was conducting routine operations. While the U.S. European Command blamed the crash on an alleged unprofessional act by the Russians, Moscow claims a sharp maneuver caused the drone to crash. The Russian Defense Ministry also said that the U.S. aircraft was flying with its transponders, which allow aircrafts to be tracked, off. According to the U.S. European Command, two Russian Su-27 fighter jets tracked the U.S. surveillance drone as it flew in international airspace over the Black Sea. It also added that prior to the collision, the jets dumped fuel on and flew in front of the MQ-9 in a reckless, environmentally unsound and unprofessional manner. The Pentagon says the incident occurred at 7.03 a.m. Central European time. While the MQ-9 is capable of carrying ammunition, General Ryder wouldn't disclose whether or not the fallen drone was armed. Accounts of the incident in the Black Sea couldn't be independently verified, and Russia claims it detected the damaged aircraft near the Crimea Peninsula. The incident has raised fears about the potential escalation risk involving Russia and the U.S., although Washington appears to be emphasizing de-escalation and referring to safe and professional aviation techniques. Okay, on this show, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were our facts. Let's start the narrative spins with the anti-Russia narrative from Air Force Times. Russia's dangerous and aggressive actions caused the U.S. MQ-9 drone to crash, and Moscow's recklessness could lead to an unintended military escalation. Russian jets antagonized the U.S. drone and even dumped fuel on it. These actions are a complete violation of international protocols. And RT brings us a pro-Russia narrative. Sharp maneuvers caused the American MQ-9 drone to crash as it irresponsibly flew toward Russia without an active transponder. The U.S. clearly violated the restricted area established for the conduct of Russia's special military operation. Now the U.S. is trying to blame Russia, even though Russian fighters did not use weapons, nor did they come in contact with the U.S. drones. 
the uh, spraying fuel on the uh, enemy craft seems particularly uh, insulting. That does seems a little uh, like a dog fight. Yeah, yeah, me. literally a dog fight. Yes, yes. I, I, I read what you say. I understand. Okay. I, I got you. Yeah, good, good. Australia, the U.S., and the U.K. unveil a major nuclear submarine deal. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Sydney Morning Herald, Reuters, The Guardian, Nikkei Asia, BBC News, and News Times. Australia will reportedly spend up to $245 billion by 2055 on a national defense program under the 2021 so-called AUKUS Pact that includes building a new fleet of eight nuclear-powered submarines to be operational in the 2040s. The largest single defense project in Australia's history was unveiled on Tuesday as U.S. President Joe Biden met with his Australian and British counterparts, Anthony Albanese and Rishi Sunak, at a U.S. naval base in San Diego amid growing tensions with China in the Indo-Pacific region. The multi-phase program is set to begin with intensified visits by U.S. submarines to Australian ports this year, followed by a rotating deployment of U.S. and British nuclear-powered submarines to Western Australia beginning in 2027 as a first step toward closing Canberra's operational capabilities gap. As part of the defense project, Australia will purchase three nuclear-powered U.S. submarines in the early 2030s, with the option to acquire two more submarines, which Biden noted will be nuclear-powered but not nuclear-armed. Another phase of the multi-decade plan features the design and construction of an all-new nuclear-powered attack submarine for the UK and Australian navies, dubbed the SSN AUKUS, to be built in Australia and the UK, but incorporating technologies from all three AUKUS allies. Meanwhile, China's foreign ministry on Tuesday condemned the latest AUKUS announcement. Thank you, Scott, for the facts. We'll start this round of spins with an establishment-critical narrative, and this comes from The Conversation. While the AUKUS allies pretend that their military buildup is about peace and stability, in reality, this deal sets off a destabilizing and unnecessary arms race that will further provoke China. This unjustifiable move reflects a Cold War and colonial mindset in which the Anglophone powers believe they have a natural right to dominate the region. By investing hundreds of billions, Australia is not only making itself an agent of U.S. hegemonic interests, but also risks gambling away its own political and economic future in an increasingly multipolar arena. And The Guardian brings us the pro-establishment narrative. The predictable Chinese criticism that the defense deal would provoke a new arms race and potentially undermine the non-proliferation regime is completely unfounded. Australia will not acquire nuclear weapons in the future and remains committed to peaceful coexistence with its neighbors. Meanwhile, it is China that is entirely non-transparent about its military buildup and refuses to accept a U.S. offer for de-escalation. Given Beijing's increasingly hostile posture, it is now up to AUKUS to defend the freedom of the Indo-Pacific region. And we have our first nerd narrative today that says there's a 16% chance that there will be a U.S.-China war before 2035. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. All right, I know in the Navy there are a lot of rules, but it looks fun to me to stand on that boat in the sun on the water. Like, you know, that part that part of the job seems that's kind of nice. Well, maybe it looks fun for you, but I get to borrow your snorkel, just so we're clear. <laughs> oh, no. 
Our next story brings us to day 384 of the Ukrainian conflict. Russia says they've extended their grain deal and doesn't recognize an international criminal court. Here are the facts as agreed upon by TASS, Reuters, The Guardian, The Moscow Times, and the Donetsk News Agency. The Black Sea grain deal, set to expire on March 18th, has been extended for a period of 60 days, Russia's Deputy Foreign Minister Alexander Grushko said on Tuesday. The deal, which has been responsible for millions of tons of grain leaving Ukrainian ports despite the war, was set to be extended for a period of 120 days, but Russia reportedly insisted on the shorter period, allowing it to terminate the deal if it doesn't see improvements in Russian food and fertilizer exports as part of the agreement. Ukraine criticized the move, stating that it would strictly follow the original terms, which they say mandate a 120-day extension. Meanwhile, the U.S. Department of State spokesman Ned Price rejected Russia's allegations about blockages on its food and fertilizer exports. We find it difficult to believe that when we know... And the rest of the world knows that Russia's exports of food and fertilizers are back up to pre-war levels, he said. This has been the case for some time now, but when we hear the Russians saying that they are being held back from exporting grain, from exporting fertilizer, it's just not true. Elsewhere, according to reporting from the New York Times and Reuters on Monday, the International Criminal Court, or ICC, is preparing to open two war crimes cases— and issue arrest warrants against several Russians allegedly responsible for abducting Ukrainian children and attacking civilian infrastructure in Ukraine. On Tuesday, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said, We do not recognize this court. We do not recognize its jurisdiction. Neither Russia nor Ukraine holds membership in the ICC, but Kyiv has granted the body jurisdiction to investigate alleged Russian war crimes in Ukraine. On the ground, a Russian attack on the Donetsk city of Kramatorsk killed at least one civilian and injured three others, Ukrainian officials said on Tuesday. A further three civilians were killed and 14 others were injured in Russian attacks elsewhere in Donetsk over the past day. One civilian was reported killed and six others were injured in attacks on Kherson, while one civilian was also reported killed in Kharkiv. Pro-Russia officials reported that two civilians were killed and four more injured in Ukrainian attacks on the Donetsk region over the past day. Thanks for that rundown of the facts, Melissa. We have a pro-establishment narrative from the U.S. State Department. Despite Russia's claims on food and fertilizer exports, the allegation that the U.S. or Western countries have blocked these is simply not true. In fact, the data shows Russia's food and fertilizer exports have returned to pre-war levels. The pro-Russia narrative comes from TASS. Russia has agreed to a 60-day extension to the grain deal in the hope that sanctions and barriers to the export of Russian grain and fertilizers is eased within this time. If it's not, Russia will have to withdraw from the agreement. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. It says that there's a 23% chance there will be a bilateral ceasefire or peace agreement in the Russo-Ukraine conflict before the year 2024. Our next story, a judicial bill passes its first vote in Israel's Knesset. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Ynet News, The Times of Israel, Haaretz, France 24, and I-24 News. Overnight on Monday, Israel's Knesset passed the first reading of a bill that would allow it to override Supreme Court decisions and enact legislation that had been struck down. 
The bill is reportedly a top priority of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's government. The 120-member body split between coalition and opposition lines, with 61 voting in favor of the measure while 52 opposed it. Now it will head to the Constitution, Law, and Justice Committee for revisions ahead of two final votes. If turned into law, the bill would make it possible for lawmakers to add an override clause into any specific bill, barring judicial reviews for at least one year into the following Knesset, even if there's a conflict with one of Israel's basic laws. Two other bills, one limiting the Attorney General from declaring the Prime Minister unfit for office, and another demanding a special majority of high court judges to strike down a law, were also approved on Monday night. This comes as the right-wing government seeks to promote a judicial overhaul, allegedly to restore the balance of power between elected politicians and unelected judges amid claims of judicial overreach. Protests have flared in the country as this proposed judicial reform faces strong opposition over allegations that it would give Netanyahu's coalition unrestrained power, with an estimated 300,000 people joining demonstrations last Saturday. Thank you, Scott. We'll start this round of spins with the left narrative. This is coming from the New Statesman. This move by Netanyahu and his most extreme allies shows, despite a legitimate right shift in the electorate, the prime minister actually has less control over his coalition than once thought. Facing scrutiny over bribery and fraud charges, the only way Netanyahu can maintain his power is by ripping apart Israel's longstanding democratic institutions and criminalizing judicial dissent. We are watching an authoritarian coup in real time. And the Jerusalem Post brings us the right narrative. Despite the left arguing that these judicial reform plans threaten democracy, the reality is actually quite the opposite. The self-appointed Israeli Supreme Court has autocratic, unchecked powers that allow it to nullify and rewrite democratically enacted laws and policies on the basis of subjective justifications. Consequently, the move is crucial to curb the court's undemocratic excesses and protect the rule of law. The pro-Palestine narrative comes from Middle East Eye. Though there's much talk from the Israeli left that the country's democracy is under threat, for Palestinians, it has never been a democracy. Apartheid and democracy are mutually exclusive, and the only reason Israelis are protesting in the first place is because they want to maintain the system that suppressed Palestinians for 75 years. And the Metaculous Prediction community brings us this nerd narrative. It says there's a 50% chance that Israel will have a national election for Knesset in 2023. So the argument is, I'm not the authoritarian, you're the authoritarian. You were the authoritarian, and now I'm not the authoritarian because you are the authoritarian. Right. Someone's got to be in complete and unquestioned control here. Who should it be? That's the question. Yeah. Our next story brings us to Pakistan, where there are clashes as police try to arrest ex-Prime Minister Imran Khan. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Hindu, and India Today. Pakistani police clashed with hundreds of members and supporters of former Prime Minister Imran Khan's Pakistan Tariq-e-Insaf, or PTI, party on Tuesday, as the group gathered outside his Zaman Park residence in Lahore to protest his arrest. Footage appeared to show an armored vehicle firing a water cannon and tear gas to disperse the crowd, as Khan's supporters reportedly threw stones at police, with a senior Islamabad officer telling them they were there to arrest Khan in the Toshakana, the state depository case. 
Khan is accused of buying expensive gifts, including a graph wristwatch as prime minister, at discounted prices from the state depository, and selling them for profit. From inside his house, the 70-year-old former head of state, who maintains the allegations against him are politically motivated ahead of this year's elections, posted a video to Twitter urging his supporters to fight for real freedom if he's arrested. This comes after Pakistan's election commission found Khan guilty of unlawfully selling gifts from foreign dignitaries that he received as prime minister. He has since reportedly skipped multiple court summons, after which charges were filed and the court issued an arrest warrant last week. Khan, ousted in April after losing a vote of confidence, has also been accused of terrorism for allegedly threatening a judge in a speech last year, with a second warrant for his arrest issued on Monday. Dawn brings us Narrative A. Imran Khan has been politically targeted for some time now, and the police have only ramped up their tactics to break the will of the PTI and its supporters. The party has told the government that Khan's lawyers are ready to discuss the charges against their client, but it seems the police have been ordered to use violence instead of dialogue. This looks more and more like a coup every day, but the Pakistani people can see right through the incumbent regime's lies. Narrative B is written by First Post. Imran Khan has repeatedly dodged lawfully executed arrest warrants and continues to not only defy police authority himself, but encourage his supporters to physically block them from conducting their duty. What Khan has persuaded his followers to do is shameful for his party and the country, and it's past time that he surrenders to authorities and lets the legal process play out. Biden signs a new gun safety executive order. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Forbes, USA Today, NBC News, The Wall Street Journal, Reuters, and the Associated Press. U.S. President Joe Biden on Tuesday signed an executive order intended to increase background checks for gun buyers, promote safer storage of firearms, and encourage law enforcement agencies to enforce last summer's bipartisan gun control law to the best of their abilities. Biden signed the order in Monterey Park, California, the site of a mass shooting in January. Although the order doesn't require universal background checks, which would have to be passed by Congress, it requests Attorney General Merrick Garland clarify who's classified as an arms dealer and ensure that those ignorant of or purposely circumventing background check law come into compliance. The order also urges the president's cabinet to promote the use of so-called red flag laws, which exist in 19 states and Washington, D.C., to identify high-risk individuals who own firearms. The president also wants the Federal Trade Commission to study how manufacturers are marketing guns, especially when it comes to marketing to minors. In a Reuters-Ipsos poll last year in the U.S., where there are more than 40,000 gun deaths per year, 84% of people said they supported background checks for all firearm sales, and 70% said they favored red flag laws. All right. Thank you, Scott. We'll start this round with a Democratic narrative. This is provided by MSNBC. The president is determined to make the U.S. safer, and Republicans who refuse to help pass popular, common-sense gun safety laws, universal background checks, a ban on assault weapons and high-capacity magazines, and repeal of immunity for gun manufacturers from liability have left him no choice but to sign landmark orders like this one. Biden will continue to do everything in his power to reduce America's gun deaths count. And the Republican narrative comes from The Washington Times. America has a crime problem, and Biden and the Democrats' way of distracting from their inability to corral it 
is by signing orders that infringe on the Second Amendment rights of lawful gun owners. This war on gun rights has to stop, and attention has to be paid to changing the laws that are letting criminals run rampant across the country. More Biden news as the Biden administration approves the Alaskan oil and gas Willow Project. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Democracy Now!, the Associated Press, The Guardian, the Department of the Interior, and Yahoo Finance. President Biden's administration greenlit ConocoPhillips' large willow oil and gas drilling project in Alaska on Monday, much to the consternation of environmental and climate change campaigners. The administration has come under fire from indigenous peoples and climate campaigners who say that the decision to approve the project breaks his climate change pledges. The project, which has bipartisan support from Alaskan congressional representatives, will be made up of three oil drilling sites and up to 199 wells. It may ultimately produce up to 180,000 barrels of oil a day, create up to 2,500 jobs during construction and 300 long-term jobs and add billions of dollars into state and federal coffers, according to ConocoPhillips. The U.S. Department of the Interior's Bureau of Land Management, which approved the project, said that their decision strikes a balance by allowing ConocoPhillips to make use of its leases in the Arctic National Petroleum Reserve while limiting the total sites to three rather than the five requested. The Bureau also announced that Biden will ban any future oil and gas drilling in 2.8 million acres of the U.S. Arctic Ocean. The agency will also consider, following a public consultation, limiting future oil and gas leasing and industrial development to protect wildlife in the region and protect millions of acres of Alaska land deemed sensitive to Native communities. The Willow Project was approved by Trump's administration in 2021. However, a federal district court rejected that approval after determining that Trump's government failed to properly consider the environmental impacts of the development. A ConocoPhillips press release brings us the pro-establishment narrative. The Biden administration has made the right decision for Alaska and for the country. Approval of the Willow Project fits with the admin's priorities on environmental and social justice, facilitating the energy transition to a green economy and enhancing U.S. energy security, all while creating good union jobs and providing benefits to Alaska Native communities. This project should reduce U.S. dependence on foreign energy and is also projected to deliver between 8 and $17 billion in revenue for the federal government, the state of Alaska, and North Slope borough communities. And Common Dreams brings us an establishment critical narrative. Biden has just approved the next U.S. climate bomb. This decision is not only a complete betrayal of his commitment to confront the climate crisis, but is also an open violation of indigenous rights. Willow would be the single largest oil extraction point on U.S. public lands, emitting 278 million metric tons of climate pollution over the next 30 years. That's equivalent to, that's equivalent to the annual emissions from 74 coal plants, one-third of all remaining U.S. plants. Willow will disproportionately impact the indigenous community, a village of about 500 people already suffering extreme pollution from existing oil projects. I do think it's not a coincidence that Biden did the gun control thing and then this pro-oil move on the same day. I think he's probably trying to, you know, not play both sides, but appeal to 
Times are rough. <laughs> yeah, God. Times are rough when you feel like that's the compromise you have to make. A new survey reports that Lahore is the world's most polluted city and Chad the most polluted of all countries. Here are the facts as agreed upon by IQ Air, CNN, Voice of America, The Print, Reuters, and Al Jazeera. The air quality of Lahore, the second largest city in Pakistan, worsened to 97.4 micrograms of PM2.5 particles per cubic meter in 2022, making it the most polluted city in the world, according to a new report. It was followed by Hotan in China, Awadi in India, Delhi also in India, and Peshawar in Pakistan. According to the 2022 World Air Quality Report published by IQ Air on Tuesday, Chad in Central Africa ranked as the country with the most polluted air, averaging PM2.5 levels of 89.7, followed by Iraq, Pakistan, Bahrain, and Bangladesh. The WHO recommends a maximum PM2.5 concentration of 5 micrograms per cubic meter, while the U.S. Pacific Territory, Guam, had cleaner air than any country, with a PM2.5 concentration of 1.3. Canberra had the cleanest air for a capital city with 2.8 micrograms of PM2.5 particles. Meanwhile, India and Pakistan had the worst air quality in Central and South Asia, with nearly 60% of the population living in areas where the concentration of PM2.5 particles is at least seven times higher than the WHO's recommended levels. Using 30,000 ground-level sensors from more than 7,000 cities, IQ Air analyzed average air quality from 131 countries and found that just six countries, Australia, Estonia, Finland, Grenada, Iceland, and New Zealand, met the WHO air quality guidelines. The report puts the economic cost of poor air quality, which accounts for 93 billion days lived with illness and over 6 million deaths yearly, to over $8 trillion, more than 6.1% of the global annual GDP. Thank you for those horrifying facts, Scott. We'll start this round of Narrative Spins with Narrative A from CNN. As the primary sources of air pollution are climate change-fueled wildfires and the burning of fossil fuels for transportation and energy production, which wreak havoc on the most vulnerable and marginalized communities across the globe, the countries with healthy air quality supply must share technical know-how with the nations suffering from higher levels of pollution to aid them in adopting greener, renewable forms of energy. And Scroll.in brings us Narrative B. More action is needed to clean the air in South Asia, but it would cost a prohibitive $2.6 billion to cut one microgram per cubic meter of PM2.5. Thus, pollution levels must be brought within safe thresholds by grassroots community efforts. If residents are involved in air quality monitoring, a shift in awareness will create the transparency and urgency needed to spawn joint efforts to improve air quality. People must demand change and hold polluters to account if they are to breathe clean air. And here's another nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. There's a 50% chance that at least 112 million disability-adjusted life years will be caused by outdoor air pollution in 2030. Well, I lived in San Francisco, and they had these things called spare the air days on days that were going to be particularly smoggy or otherwise uh, polluted. Uh, they would say, oh, it's a spare the air day and like, and the trains are free 
and they would have various things, you know, and I used to ride the train to work. So the train would be free that day. Oh, that's uh, nice. Invariably it would be the day after I bought the month pass and then they would say it was free. Like that's, you know, right. That's, yeah, that's like how it just goes. filled up. Yeah. <laughs> that is but, how it goes. yeah. but it was kind that's of what interesting. you get for always taking the train. The FBI says U.S. hate crimes increased nearly 12 percent in 2021. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NPR Online News, Fox News, Al Jazeera, and Voice of America. According to an FBI report released Monday, hate crimes in the U.S. rose by nearly 12 percent in 2021, with 9,065 reported incidents, compared to 8,120 the year before. The agency noted that approximately 12,411 individuals were reported to have been hate crime victims in 2021, with the majority believed to have been targeted due to their race or ethnicity. The FBI said 64.5% of reported events were due to race or ethnicity, about 16% due to sexual orientation, and 14.1% due to religion. The agency noted that intimidation and assault were the largest portion of crimes, with 18 murders also reported. The hate crime categories were reportedly anti-black, anti-white, anti-gay male, anti-Jewish, and anti-Asian. The agency revealed that 43.2% of crimes against persons were intimidation, 35.5% were simple assault, and 20.1% were aggravated assault. According to the director for the Center of the Study of Hate and Extremism at California State University, the year-on-year increase in hate crimes between 2020 and 2021 was the largest in over three decades. Vox brings us the Democratic narrative. As far back as 2015, Donald Trump has been connected to documented acts of white supremacy, violence, and individuals, even claiming he was their inspiration. While he refuses to recognize the problem, Trump has helped to cultivate a tense national climate fueled by hate. Trump's shameless exploitation of racial tensions within the U.S. for his own political gains has inflicted true societal damage. Here's a Republican narrative from The Federalist. The hysteria around the rise of white supremacy in the U.S. is no longer reserved for those who genuinely believe in such a reality, nor only the favorite insult of left-wing politicians. The term is now applied so broadly that it has infiltrated the decision-making of the Biden administration. The woke left continues to attempt to push a narrative that does not exist, condemning the majority of the American population, when in reality cases of hate crimes by white supremacists are incredibly rare. And the establishment critical narrative comes from Global Times. The U.S. will only end hate attacks at home when it decides to end hate attacks internationally. The U.S.'s repeated attempts to scapegoat nations such as China are indicative of the storm of xenophobia that only continues to make Americans think such behavior is acceptable. Such rhetoric has made the lives of populations such as Asian Americans and Muslim Americans unacceptably dangerous. A new report claims extreme poverty could be eradicated by 2050. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by MSN, The Guardian, and Global News. According to a new report from the Center for Global Development, or CGD, titled Scenarios for Future Global Growth to 2050, Extreme Global Poverty Could Be Eradicated by 2050. The GCD's forecast, which defines those in extreme poverty as anyone living on less than $2.15 a day, 
predicts the share of the world population experiencing it will fall from about 8% in 2022 to below 2% by 2050. In Africa, where the proportion of extreme poverty is highest, it is set to fall from 29% to 7%. The paper added that low-income countries may disappear as a group by 2050, by which point 67% of the world will be living on more than $10 per day compared to the current 42%. Africa has recently seen rising investment, especially from China, as part of its Belt and Road Initiative. According to the International Institute of Sustainable Development, China invested nearly $3 billion in Africa in 2020. The report maintains that there is still considerable uncertainty about the global economy's future and that there are many events that could plausibly alter forecasts. The authors specifically cite the risk that demographic change could act as a drag on growth for wealthier countries. While the COVID pandemic reversed significant progress made towards eradicating extreme poverty, the damage is not believed to have irreversibly altered the overall trajectory. Thanks, Scott, for the facts on that final and inspiring story. We'll start this final round of spins with Narrative A, provided by Concern USA. Eradicating extreme poverty is not only theoretically achievable, it is within our sights. With a holistic approach focused on equity, poverty across the globe can be greatly reduced. We have already seen a significant reduction in poverty rates, and with a justice-based effort, we can eradicate poverty for good. And Narrative B comes from Development Initiatives. While the global community has done a great job of quantifiably reducing poverty levels, the work is just beginning. Extreme poverty is a very complex issue that is highly concentrated in regions that are difficult to project. There are so many confounding factors that it is challenging to envision extreme poverty ending anytime soon. And the nerds have the last word. With the nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community, there is an 18% chance that we will see fewer than 375 million people in extreme poverty by 2030. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Thank you for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, March 15th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. 